Hey everyone, thanks for joining this episode of Pulling the Strings Podcast, powered by Puppet. I am delighted to be your host. My name is Demetrius Malbro, and I'm on the product marketing team here at Puppet. And I'm really excited today to talk with Nigel Kirsten and Michael Stanky. And so Nigel has been a leading co-author on the industry-leading State of the DevOps report for the last nine years and works with Puppet's largest customers on the cultural and organizational changes necessary for large-scale DevOps implementations. And he loves cognitive science, synthesizers, and test cricket. Also, Michael is VP of Platform at CircleCI, running SRE, Security and Tooling. And prior to this, he worked at Puppet, running Puppet Enterprise Engineering, Platform Engineering, as well as SRE. He is an established author where he has co-authored State of DevOps Reports and State of Software Delivery. He's also a popular speaker and has attended various DevOps days, CTO summits, puppetized conferences, and more. And he founded the package repository Apple and wrote a book on SSH in 2005. So great bios, and it is a pleasure to have both of you on Pulling the Strings. Nigel and Mike, how are you today? Doing well. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, fantastic. Let's let's see if we can rally up everything within you to have a very exciting conversation about several things. So one is State of DevOps report, and also some of the things that, that you found out um, you know, researching and writing about details on that report, et cetera. So let's dive right into some questions. So why is it important to measure the state of the DevOps industry right now? Mike, let's, let's start with you. Well, I think measurements, it just, it, you can't improve what you don't measure, I guess, is a, was a common saying in, in uh, a company I used to work at that may or may not be sponsoring this podcast. Um, but if, you, if you're not measuring things, you don't know how you're doing, you can't improve, you don't know where to spend your time and where, where you want to move. And so for us, um, we've been measuring for 10 years or, you know, this, I guess, 2021 will be the 10th year that we're doing this. But th this is about the 2020 report. We've been measuring for, for nine years on what's going on in DevOps. And we like to, you know, look at trends over time, look at what's, what's changed, what's improved. But right now, the things we're trying to measure are, we kind of evolved early on from, is DevOps the right thing? Is it something we should believe in? Does it have good outcomes? And then it went to, okay, we're pretty sure that most places are convinced that DevOps is a thing and it's a good thing, but how do they get there and how do you get more prescriptive? And so in 2018, we pivoted a lot more to measuring what are the things that indicate success versus just what is high-performing DevOps versus not. Um, so right now we're really looking for what, what are the things that break through and what, what gets you to the next step in, in your DevOps evolution? So to jump onto that, I think, you know, the thing you said there about you can't improve what you have, what you aren't measuring to be pretty blunt about it. Things are pretty bad out there with IT in general, like DevOps practices have made a big difference. You know, there's a bunch of people and a bunch of organizations that have significantly improved. And we've seen individual teams inside organizations improve dramatically by adopting these practices. But what I see over and over again, and what we've seen from the last few years of the report, and just from anecdotes around the industry, is that people are really struggling with how to succeed organizationally. And those problems are really, really difficult. And so I'd say the reason it's really important for us to do a state of DevOps report each year and to keep looking at the space, seeing what people are actually doing is we've got to work out how to get ourselves out of this mess. You know, people are 
doing really good greenfield deployments using DevOps practices, but the number of companies that are actually really knocking it out of the park in taking their legacy environments, all of their existing processes and reinventing them in light of new capabilities and new ways of thinking about things is pretty damn small, I'd say. So I think it's really important that we do this each year and we start to try and work out, as Mike was saying, give people a more prescriptive path for getting out of the being stuck in the middle of the evolutionary journey as we've been talking about it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And so being stuck in the middle and the journey that they're on. So just pulling something from the report, it looks like 63% of respondents say their company has at least one self-service internal platform. Could we dig into that a little more and maybe share a little color or maybe something that was not shared um, on, on paper that is interesting? So one thing, I'm going to jump in on that one because I'm pretty passionate about this topic. I think, you know, 63% of respondents say they have at least one self-service internal platform. But is that really, you know, built in the way and operated in the way that we know is, you know, incredibly required to be really successful at this? And that is to do things with a product mindset. You know, you could answer yes to that question if you were offering a pretty traditional self-service enterprise catalog, so to speak, where you might go to a web page and click on a bunch of different menu items. And it's all relatively opaque and difficult to modify and really difficult to collaborate and share around. The companies that we're seeing who are being really successful at the platform team approach are really collaborative with their users. They're out there looking for what are the problems? How do we actually solve them? And they're exposing those things via APIs. And I think this thing is really, really critical. And I know this is a subject near and dear to Mike's heart because this is how you can take advantage of your shell scripts inside your programming languages and for what is increasingly becoming the sort of backbone of the infrastructure fabric in big organizations, the CI/CD systems. Yeah, I mean, this is this is exactly what what people are looking at when they're doing internal platforms. We, you know, you asked kind of about self-service to start with, and that was the same thing that we asked about as we were doing this research. We thought, wow, you know, the the, the ultimate evolution here is self-service, and then as we asked more questions and talked to more, uh, you know, practitioners in the field, it really self-service is not. The end journey, that's actually a characteristic of the end journey. It's not, that's, not, that's not the actual thing you want. What you want is a platform with a bunch of capabilities that other people can consume. And that, that way you've, you've abstracted out the, I guess, the boring things. Maybe not the boring is the right word, but like the, the things that, get, that don't need to be unique across different teams that are delivering value. You know, things like connection pooling to a database or uh, how do you consume queues or do you have persistent queues or do you have resilient logging, you know, or just a bunch of kind of infrastructure type components. And if those can be all abstracted out or self-service available or your persistence layers are self-service, then it's much more about what do the developers need to do their business work? And, you know, can, can each team be working on only the things that differentiate them from the next team over and not, well, I wrote a connection pooling thing and the next team over, well, I had to write a different connection pooling thing because I had a slightly different use case. And to me, that's, that's really where the value of an internal platform comes from. And if you circled that back with what Nigel was saying from a product management mindset, if you treat your internal developers or your internal technology teams as those customers and you kind of say, well, what's in your way? What's the, what's the prevention of, you know, what's, what's in your way? Why are you not delivering the value you want to deliver at the cadence you want to deliver it at? And, you know, that, that's what the internal platform can really step in and do is, you, you, you know, if you can have 80% of all things in the internal platform, then you're only worrying about a 20% differential versus maybe, you know, an inverse of that in a lot of cases. And I think that word abstraction that you brought up there, Mike, is really key to a lot of this because one of the big design issues, I think, with internal platforms is 
what level do you create those abstractions at? And if you think of the analogy as being like API design, you can really easily fall into the trap of creating these really high level abstractions that solve a relatively large problem. But then you're giving up on the opportunity of making those self-service capabilities you're exposing composable and reconstituted in different ways by your users. And I think this is one of the things that we've really seen from successful platform teams is they manage to build those APIs at the right level of abstraction. So they're getting rid of that sort of stuff that you don't have to think about. And it's not really a differentiator like the connection pooling Mike was talking about, but you still have freedom and sort of the ability as an end user to go, well, actually I can take these four or five things, glue them together in a slightly different way. And now I'm solving a whole new problem. Like for example, maybe you know provisioning a particular cluster in a certain way with a certain specification, I can take that along with an API to grab a specific version of an application and deploy it. And now I can give someone a higher level, let's do a regression test against a particular application, a particular bug. So I think that's one of the key reasons why you need you know, a product mindset, that you need to design these solutions so that not only are they solving real problems, but they're low enough level that your technical user base can actually reconstitute them to solve new problems. Yeah, and let, let's also address the the elephant in the room. You know, from 2020 was a um, a really interesting year, and you know the pandemic uh, hit as well. And some of the top challenges to just providing an internal platform, um, you know, things around lack of technical skills within the team and lack of standardization, lack of time, etc. What are some of the patterns that that you saw after you know digging into some of the research? And maybe some things that surprised you as you were kind of walking through uh, the data and also some of the other uh, things that you happened to see. So I guess one of the things, you know, I, and I'm not making light of COVID and the terrible situation many, many people and most of the world's actually in with the pandemic right now. But one of the things I have heard from a lot of practitioners that I work with is they're actually have a fair bit more freedom to get work done and there's fewer meetings and they get sort of longer chunks of time to actually think about things. So I think there, there is, you know, some people are getting some small positives out of this changes in ways of working. And I, you know, many people who've been proponents of remote work for a long time are starting to see that some of those benefits do actually come across to organizations. The biggest problem I see with platform teams is it's often envisaged as something, another the next evolution of centralized IT. So it's either just they're paying lip service to the concepts around it and they're just trying to reclaim authority from you know development and value delivery teams like that. Or, and this is even worse if they're combined together, it's under a project-based funding scheme. So internally, it's like, we're going to spend this much money, this period of time, and then at the end, we will have a platform and then we don't need to think about it again. But this is really an area where you need to do continuous investment um, and it can't really be project-based funding. It needs to be a, a cost center that's being funded continuously to deliver value continuously because the wins are not going to be really quick at the beginning, um, even if you're going after the low-hanging fruit. But there's this exponential rate of return once you start getting more and more development teams and more and more infrastructure teams making use of those capabilities. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about ROI, I guess, when... Uh... When you were talking and also when the initial question was posed about, you know, what was different this year. And I think when people want to make a platform investment, you want to think about how do you know if it's working and and what does it mean to, to be successful? And then how do you measure that? And, you know, in the state of DevOps report, we have a, you know, a couple of different sidebars on ROI. And, and I, I even modeled my own organization as one of them, because I can tell you that the conversation I'm in with other executives on a very regular basis is what's the ROI of this engineering org? It's, it's rather expensive. 
but the things that you can show out at certain points are it's you know it at some layers it is if I hire one engineer in a platform area, that might mean that I don't need to hire six area uh, six engineers on development teams. If development teams each need an engineer to do kind of common practice and common scaffolding, or I hire one person in a platform organization to write that and make it reusable, that's a way better investment. That's leverage. And that, those are the things that we need to be able to demonstrate over and over again for a platform org. And so Nadal's right. You don't want to run it as a as a project-based funding, I, I don't like the word cost center attached to it either, but that's just because I think coming up from an IT background, the words cost center just don't feel good no matter how they're said. <laughs> and so to me, like, I want to make sure that, you know, we're providing the maximum amount of value and it's just, it's the right amount of value for value delivery to, to everybody delivering technology, but it's, it's centralized. Like you do want to centralize the things that can be centralized so that you don't have nine variations of how to do database connections or you know, talking to a queue or, or whatever your, your platform requirements are. I think of it, Mike, often as you want to centralize the patterns and yes. the, the processes that people are using, but you don't have to centralize the authority around using those things. And you really want to try and distribute this back to my sort of earlier point about people recomposing. You want to let your users come up with solutions. And I think that was much of the frustration people had with traditional centralized IT, where your technical developers who often have, you know, a reasonable understanding of a certain level of infrastructure just felt completely hamstrung by what they were doing. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot there. Like if you look kind of at the classic centralized IT, you know, you go back to the BOFH days and all the memes on Slashdot. Yeah. And then now today it's much more like the default stance isn't no. It's you can do what you want, but we've made certain things really, really easy. And you'd be kind of silly not to do them this way. Um, Which I think speaks to the the thing we talked about, about how critical it is for um, you to evangelize your platform capabilities. Like we're not in a world where you can build things inside a large organization and just order people to use it. You know, the the tech landscape is way too fragmented. There's too many teams operating at different speeds. You've got to actually go out there and sell it to people internally. And that's actually part of your job as someone running IT in an organization these days. Like that, you can't just be demonstrating value, you know, in those meetings you were talking about, Mike. You want to be, have it happening organically back from the people who are actually your customers and users telling their managers, this capability makes my job better. Yeah. I mean, we have people that are saying, hey, I want to adopt this common tooling because when I do that, the security patches are all taken care of for me. You know, it's things like that. I can get this toil off my plate if I'm using patterns that are supplied to me by a platform organization. And so most of the developers, once they find a couple of those benefits, are very pleased to to kind of build upon those those foundations. Now, also, gentlemen, what about change management? Since it was a key theme running through the report, uh, change management in the DevOps era. era. Um, what do you have to say around change management? And do you have a philosophy as to what you see change management uh, delivering, and I guess how it's changing? in uh, especially 2021? My quick pithy one I would say is that almost everyone I see who's complaining about their change management process hasn't actually done the job of reaching across the aisle and going and talking to the people who run those processes and going, hey, we have these capabilities inside our organization or we have these needs. Let's work together on actually fixing them. And every single person I've ever talked to who has made that effort has succeeded. They've, because these people tend to be very rational, very process driven. They understand, you know, evolution of things, but too often inside organizations, they're just in silos that don't talk to each other. So I think there's a yeah. lot of details in how you can improve your change management process. But step one is literally just go talk to the people who own that process in your organization. Yeah, I think, I do think there's a lot there. I think the way people are incentivized about change management is the thing that I usually come back to is um, people that are very 
let's see, ingrained in a change management process, a lot of times they're actually, they're doing a lot of work to not allow change. That's, that's their whole goal. And somebody else's goal might be, but I want to make lots of changes. And if that's where you're incentivized at and you're at odds, that kind of needs to be squared before you can go make your next steps. Like if the goal of change management is to stop change and somebody else's goal is to make a bunch of change, like that's the conversation you have to have first is like, what's the real business goal here? And I mean, change management by definition is basically a process to prevent change, which is one of the reasons I kind of hate it. But <laughs> we, 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 we've dug into that, you know, a lot of different ways. And I think the thing that was really interesting about asking a bunch of questions about change management this year was not everybody's doing it in this classic kind of ITIL molded, you know, it was the same in 1998 as it would be today process. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're, we're, we are seeing pockets of areas where, you know, local approval or local authority is really the way people are moving forward. They can move rather quickly. Um, you know, we're seeing changes that maybe are orchestrated or delivered through, uh, you know, CICD technology kind of don't have the same level of scrutiny or, or cab meetings or, you know, the same level of, I guess, overall barriers to entry onto the production uh, fleet of, in, of software or whatever. And so we're just starting to see some things break away and move faster. And I think that's where the differentiation happens. You know, speed to market is everything. And even that's for internal customers. If you can keep moving, you can keep everybody else moving. And so, uh, you know, we, we had four different, uh, you know, categories for change management. And we had kind of this you know, engineering driven and ops led and then like pathological, in, in, um, you know, around approvals, like they were so focused on approvals, but not actually the outcome. And um, what was the, oh, the other one was just very ad hoc, where it was like, you almost had no change management process at all. And that yeah. was usually at, at, at much smaller firms, you know, where it, you can just lean over and say, you know, hey, I'm going to deploy this. And Sally says, or, you know, leans back over and says, cool, I'm on it. You know what I found fascinating, though, Mike, was that um, when we analyzed people for their sentiment and how they how effective they felt their change management process was, for all of the complaints about these heavy processes and how terrible they are, most of the people inside those organizations with really heavy, slow processes both were happier with their change management and thought it was more effective when it wasn't actually, which I thought was amazing. I don't know if I thought it was amazing. I thought it was like exactly what I would have expected if I had sat down and thought about it for a couple minutes. Because like the people that when your whole job is like, I'm a change coordinator or I, I'm the, the change manager or whatever that, that role is, like that's all you live. And so you think you're great at it. You think you're doing so much about it, but it's like, what, what if that role didn't exist? No, no, but I, I think the thing was, remember, because people were responding from organizations in all sorts of roles. Like I understand the change managers themselves having that attitude, but we were getting that, you know, the, the signal was strong enough that it was IT practitioners who may yeah. be more victims of change management. And I think that says something about how the fact that David Graeber used to have has this whole thing on bullshit jobs and you know the fact that we fill our fill our days up with busy work and sometimes that's what we get our sense of worth out of in certain kinds yep. of highly corporate environments <laughs> and this feels yeah. like one of those things where there's a certain kind of you're just rubber stamping bits of paper saying yes saying no but at the end of the day you're like I ticked off a whole bunch of things but you're not really sort of questioning what's the actual value being provided which yeah. I think speaks back to the speed to market stuff you were talking about, Mike. Yeah, no, I can, I completely agree. I, I think there's a lot there of the, you know, what's the real value in, in this role or in this process or in the steps in the process. And that kind of circles back to the initial point you were making is like, can you sit down and have a conversation about how you, like, what are you incentivized on? What are you aligned on? What's the, what's in the way? And, and start just chopping away things that are problematic. And, you know, the thing is those complicated change processes, they're all there for good reason. You know, every if statement, every approval was put in because something went wrong at some point, And this was the, the safety measure that was installed to prevent that. 
But the thing is, you need to ask is like, when's the last time that safety measure worked? What's the cost of that safety measure? You know, can we accept a different level of risk? Uh, you know, maybe it's even for only certain types of work versus other types of work, but maybe it's for all work. And I, I just feel like the change management process is one of those things that people have always been afraid to go after. And I think you're right. If you do go after it and, and work on it, you can make pretty decent headway. Um, my time, my time in enterprise, that was what I did. So, M- Michael, you, you also said that people may be sometimes afraid of change management. What, what would you say to people that are still on the fence about automating their change management processes and really kind of coupling everything together to have like this automation workflow around it? I mean, I would say that uh, computers produce more predictable and accurate results than humans ever will. So automation is usually good, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Let let me jump in that one because I think one of the things we've learned from a few customers and people making these changes is, so I was being a little pithy when I said the first step should be go and talk to them. Mike's totally right that you want to try and make sure you're aligning incentives first. But one practical bit of advice I'd have would be, go and learn the terminology that the change management folks speak in. Because often, you know, we we talk a lot in DevOps or we used to in the early days around empathy being a fundamental building block of DevOps. And I think you've really got to build, assuming that the people listening to this are more on the sort of IT practitioner side who see themselves as victims of change management, um, build empathy for these people because they have a role and their role is to reduce risk in the organization. And rather than going and talking about, you know, some slow, terrible bit of work that you're being forced to do, go and talk to them about ways that you could, you know, minimize risk in a more efficient manner and start looking at the terminology that they're actually using to describe their own work and adopt that when you're trying to advocate for change, no pun intended. All right. So you, you mentioned risk and you, you can't you can't have a conversation nowadays, especially on a podcast without mentioning security. Right. So. Security is key because there are things running around like like ransomware and malware, and these are continuing to increase in organizations. So what's your stance on integrating security into the software delivery process? And is there anything or any trends that you have seen around this? Well, I mean, first, you know, it's amazing computers work at all, given everything that's going on out there in the world and all of the different (laughs) threats we're facing. But I I think, you know, and I know Mike has a lot of thoughts on this as well. It's, you know, shift left has been almost, has almost become a bit of a cliche, but the reality is it's a lot easier to fix issues early than it is when, like before they're deployed than when they're actually in production. And I think the same thing goes for infrastructure. We often talk about shift left in terms of application development security, but the same goes for InfoSec and for all of your operations security as well. If you can get security people to collaborate with you at the design phase and to do so in the form of code, in some sort of you know infrastructure as code, policy as code, anything where you can formalize the social contract between two different teams in, via automation, that's how you can actually build trust really quickly creating those collaboration spaces around code early on as part of the design process. And I just see that trend continuing to increase because there's a lot of improvement I think the whole industry could make in terms of tooling and capabilities there. Yeah, I, I think from a, from the security point of view, um, you know, Nigel's right. You, you want to shift this earlier into the process, but I also don't think that means you want to remove it from later in the process. Like a shift left is a little bit disingenuine for some of these things anymore where you really want to shift it wide you want to start early, but you also want to keep your security monitoring and validation going, you know, whether it's a thing that is running in production is, a, you know, an online tool or it's being delivered to a customer or whatever. You want to continuously validate that from a security perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's the, 
that's one of the more difficult things. People are, you know, are saying, well, I'm going to move all my testing left. That way I know early on. Well, great. You should, you should do all that, but that doesn't mean take away the testing that you do in production or the penetration testing you do, or the black box testing that you have maybe, you know, a red team do or, or whatever, like security is, it's a very challenging field and it's a game that's ever evolving. And I think that it, it needs to just go as wide as possible. I guess it's not just shift left early, like you should shift left early, but there's more to it than that. I think the other side of that is everybody needs to be understanding that there, there's a level of risk we all have to live with. And, you know, where, is, where, where are we comfortable with that level of risk and have we identified it and do we know what it looks like? And, you know, there are things going on all the time. And then the last thing would be, I think the thing that was most frustrating when we studied security two years ago in the state of DevOps report, we really did a deep dive on it, was a lot of people seem to know what the right things to do are and they just don't do them. And so, you know, how, how do you prioritize the, you know, hey, I know I'm supposed to patch this thing, but I haven't gotten to it. Or I know I'm not supposed to allow this thing to talk to this thing without authentication, but it was the easy way we got it set up and I never fixed it. You know, the equivalent of Chmod 777 to make something go. Like those things happen <laughs> all the time. And like, oh, no. that's just where, <laughs> that's where people, that's where things break down. You know, the advanced hacks that you read about, like, or in the, or see in the movies, those aren't that, that common. Well, solo wins. Yeah. <laughs> that's a totally different beast, right? Um, and, and just to incorporate everything that, that we spoke about today, just overall, like, where do you see cloud as being a big component of these trends? Or, you know, what, what are some things that, that you want to emphasize as, as we move into like this increasingly, you know, hybrid cloud or multi-cloud world? I have a quick one, which is going to be that, I think a lot of the cloud teams that we see in enterprises that I interact with are getting to move quickly because they're being ignored by processes such as change management and compliance, or, or they're being asked questions, but they're not particularly the detailed questions right now. So I think it can sometimes be a false dichotomy when people are like, on-premise infrastructure moves really slowly and the cloud teams move really quickly. And a lot of the times it's because the rest of the processes, those sort of organizational scar tissue, the if statements that Mike was talking about in terms of process and change management and compliance, they're not as formalized for these teams. So they're given more freedom. Now, that actually also increases risk as well. So I think we're going to see many people doing a lot more work in the cloud compliance space and starting to solve problems there. And we're going to have to necessarily accept a little bit of slowdown to mitigate risk as more critical core banking, et cetera, applications move towards the cloud. But I think it's a necessary trade-off. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're right. There's this, there's like this, I want to innovate. And so you're in a giant company and you, you kind of give some startup rules to a team that's maybe the cloud team or, or something, something like that, the digital transformation team. And I think the, the question that I always want to come back to is why, why can't you give that set of rules to everybody else? Exactly. Like why, why can't everybody else move at that speed? Um, so those are usually the, the challenges that, you know, when we're in conversations with other leaders that will we'll challenge the leader and ask those types of questions. And sometimes we'll get great answers and sometimes we'll get amazing anecdotes of why they can't. Um, You've stolen my thunder, actually, because of what I was going to say. Was next, <laughs> the, I think the next evolution is going to be we're going to see a more agile approach to change management and compliance become de facto standard in the cloud space. But then if if we're not idiots, we'll import those practices to on-premise and not just leave that world to rot in 2000s era process management. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the other thing is, you know, success and failure in the cloud is, is going to be at different speeds and different different paradigms for different companies. You know, some people are very into, I want everything cloud native, I'm going to build my applications that way. Some people are, I want to take my applications that exist today and put them in a cloud environment, which is opens up different avenues of concern. 
And then you also have people that are going to put everything in the cloud and then get a bill and say, I don't like this unpredictable cost model. And that's a big problem for my business. It, it, it's a huge risk. And I want to you know, have more control over this. So I'm going to go put it back in my own data center. Or I've done, I split out this monolith into 65 microservices. And it turns out keeping 65 things online is way harder than keeping three online. Um, and those are all things that people are going to run into at different levels as they go either through cloud adoption or, you know, cloud native application building. And I just think we haven't seen all the backlash of all those things hit publicly yet, but you're, you're starting to see it in small groups. And I think you'll see it more and more as, as larger, I would say, less technologically forward and proficient companies, you know, like not Google and, and not the other FANG companies, you know, are they doing big cloud adoptions? And we'll start to see some of this stuff come back. I heard someone the other day use the phrase lift and shift for their legacy cloud environment to the new <laughs> cloud environment. Um, and I was like, wow, I'm getting too old to be hearing, you know, these terms like start oh, to get wow. recycled that way. You can create legacy code today if you try hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, if, if I was to sit down at a computer, that's exactly what I would create is legacy code. All right, gentlemen. So I appreciate all of the insights that you have brought to pulling the strings. Uh, Michael, um, how can listeners reach out to you on social media? Uh, I am uh, at Stanma and pretty much every service on the internet. That's S-T-A-H-N-M-A. Uh, that was a username I got right out of school and it's pretty unique. So I use it everywhere. All right. What's the story behind it? Uh, it's my last name with, uh, like it was the, the first five characters, my last name, the first letter of my first name and first letter of my middle name. Is that it? Yep. Ah, uh, when usernames could only be eight characters. Oh, come on. Yep. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably before shadow passwords. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that old. I mean, depending on what OS. Yeah, exactly. All right. And Nigel, what about you? Um, I, I made the unfortunate mistake of using my real name on Twitter um, early, so let's go with that one, at Nigel Kirsten on Twitter. I really do wish I'd picked a much cooler pseudonym. <laughs> well, well, we'll give you a pass on that one this time. So, uh, yeah, I truly appreciate the conversation, and I would like to thank you both for sharing with us on Pulling the Strings podcast, Powered by Puppet. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.